Section 11 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Ari Sheffer, Part 1. The Artistic Taste of the Princess the lofty range of her understanding, her liberality, and the sterling benevolence of her mind all combined to engender a coldness and lack of sympathy between herself and the persons composing the court. In the heart of the princess dwelt a deep religious faith, such as becomes a noble womanly heart. Nevertheless, her ardent mind sought to penetrate every mystery, so she was often accused of being a doubter, when the reverse was really true. Ari Sheffer to his brother Arnold. The artistic evolution of Ari Sheffer was brought about mainly through the influence of three women. In the love of these women, he was bathed, nourished, and refreshed. Their approbation gave direction to his efforts. For them, he lived and worked, while a fourth woman, by her inability to comprehend the necessities of such a genius, clipped his wings so that he fell to earth and his feet mired in the clay. The first factor in the evolution of Sheffer, in point of both time and importance, was his mother. She was the flint upon which he tried his steel, his teacher, advisor, critic, friend. She was a singularly strong and capable woman, seemingly slight and fragile, but with a deal of whipcord, sinewy strength in both her physical and mental fiber. No one can study the lives of eminent artists without being impressed with the fact that the artist is essentially the child of his mother. The sympathy demanded to hold a clear mental conception, the imagination that sees the whole, even when the first straight line is made, is the gift of mother to son. She gives him of her spirit, and he is heir to her love of color, her desire for harmony, and her hunger for sympathy. These, plus his masculine strength, may allow him to accomplish that which was to her only a dream. If a mother is satisfied with her surroundings, happy in her environment, and therefore without a noble discontent, her children will probably be quite willing to have a good time on the unearned increment that is the material portion. Her virtue and passive excellence die with her, and she leaves a brood of mediocrities. Were this miraculous scheme of adjustment lacking in the eternal plan, wealth, achievement, and talent could be passed along in a direct line and the good things of earth be corralled by a single family. But nature knows no law of entail. She does, however, have her law of compensation, and this is the law which holds in order the balance of things. If a man accumulates a vast fortune, he probably also breeds spendthrifts, who speedily distribute his riches. If he has great talent, the talent dies with him, for he only inspires those who are not of his blood. And if a woman is deprived of the environment 
for which her soul yearns. Quite often her children adjust the average by working out an answer to her prayer. When 28 years of age, we find Madame Sheffer a widow with three sons by name Ariel, Henri, and Arnold. Madame Sheffer had a little money, not much, but enough to afford her a small living income. She might have married again, or she could have kept her little thought intact and added interest to principal by going and living with kinsmen, who were quite willing to take care of her and adopt her children. But no, she decided to leave the sleepy little Dutch village where they lived in Holland and go down to Paris. And so she thrust her frail bark boldly upon the tide, hoping and expecting that somewhere and sometime the friendly islands would be reached. She would spend her last sou in educating her boys, and she knew, she said, that when that was gone, God would give them the power and inclination to care for her and provide for themselves. In short, she tumbled her whole basket of bread upon the waters, fully confident that it would come back buttered. Her object in moving to Paris was that her boys could acquire French, the language of learning, and also that they might be taught art. And so they moved to the great strange world of Paris, Paris the gay, Paris the magnificent, Paris that laughs and leers and sees men and women go down to death and still laughs on. They lived away up and up in a tenement house in two little rooms. There was no servant, and the boys took hold cheerfully to do the housekeeping, for the mother wasn't so very strong. The first thing was to acquire the French language, and if you live in Paris, the task is easy. You just have to. That's all. Madame Sheffer was an artist of some little local repute in the village where they had lived, and she taught her boys the rudiments of drawing. Ariel was always called Ari. When he grew to manhood, he adopted this pet name his mother had playfully given him. He used to call her Little Mother. Shortly after reaching Paris, Ari was placed in the studio of Monsieur Guerin. Arnold showed a liking for the Oriental languages and was therefore allowed to follow the bent of his mind. Henry waxed fat on the crumbs of learning that Ari brought home. And so they lived and worked and studied very happy, with only now and then twinges of fear for the future, for it would look a little black at times, do all they could to laugh away the clouds. It was a little democracy of four with high hopes and lofty ideals. Mutual tasks and mutual hardships bound them together in a love that was as strong as it was tender and sweet. Two years of Paris life had gone by, and the little fun they had not been augmented by a single franc in way of income had dwindled sadly. In six months it was gone. They were penniless. The mother sold her wedding ring, and the brooch her husband had given her before they were married. Then the furniture went to the pawnbrokers, piece by piece. One day Airy came, bounding up the stairs three steps at a time. He burst into the room and tossed into his mother's lap fifty francs. 
When he caught his breath, he explained that he had sold his first picture. Airy, the elder boy, was 18. Henri, the younger, was 13. It was just like a play, you see, said Ari Sheffer, long years afterward. When things get desperate enough, they have to mend. They must. The pictures I painted were pretty bad, but I really believed they were equal to many that commanded large prices, and I succeeded in bringing a few buyers around to my views. Genius may starve in a garret, if alone, but the genius that would let its best friend starve, too, being too modest to press its claims, is a little lacking somewhere. Young Sheffer worked away at any subject that he thought would sell. He painted just as his teacher, Garin, told him, and Garin painted just like his idol, David, or as nearly as he could. Art had gotten into a fixed groove. Laws had been laid down as to what was classic and what not. Conservatism was at the helm. Art, literature, philosophy, science, even religion, had their periods of infancy, youth, manhood, and decay. And there comes a time to every school and every sect when it ceases to progress, when it says, There now, this is perfection, and he who seeks to improve on it is anathema. It is dead and should be burned. But schools and sects and creeds die hard. Creeds never can be changed. They simply become obsolete and are forgotten. They turn to dust and are blown away on the free winds of heaven. The art of the great David had passed into the hands of imitators. It had become a thing of meets and bounds and measurements and geometric theorems. Its colors were made by mixing this with that according to certain fixed formulas. About this time, a young playwright by the name of Victor Hugo was making much din, and the classics, as a consequence, were making mighty dull and endeavoring to hiss him down. The censor had forbidden a certain drama of Hugo's to be played until it had been cut and trimmed and filed and polished and made just like all other plays. Victor Hugo was the acknowledged leader of the spirit of protest. In lyric music, Rossini led, and Delacroix raised the standard of revolt in painting. With this new school, which called itself Romanticism, Madame Sheffer and her son sincerely sympathized. The term Romanticism of itself means little, or nothing, or everything. But the thing itself is the eternal plea for the right of the individual, a cry for the privilege to live your own life and express the truth as you feel it, all in your own way. It is a revolution that has come a thousand times and must and will come again and again. When custom gets greater than man, it must be broken. The amcolosis of artistic smugness is no new thing. In heart and taste and ambition, Ari and the little mother were one. Madame Sheffer rejoiced in the revolt she saw in the air against the old and outgrown. She was a Republican in all her opinions and ideals, and these feelings she shared with her boys. They discussed politics and art and religion over the teacups, and this brave and gentle woman kept intellectual pace with her sons who, in merry frolic, 
often carried her about in their arms. Only yesterday, it seemed to her, she had carried them and felt upon her face the soft caress of baby hands, and now one of these sons stood a foot higher than she. Ari Sheffer was tall, slender, with a thoughtful, handsome face. The habit of close study and the early realization of responsibilities had hastened his maturity. Necessity had sharpened his business sense and given a practical side to his nature, so he deferred enough to the old world to secure from it the living that is every man's due. His pictures sold, sold for all they were worth. The prices were not large, but there was enough money so that the gaunt wolf that once scratched and sniffed at the door was no longer to be seen nor heard. They had all they needed. The little mother was the banker, and we may safely guess that nothing was wasted. Pupils now came to Ari Sheffer, dull fellows from the schools, who wished to be coached, sitters in search of good portraits, cheap for cash, occasionally climbed the stairway. The little mother dusted about and fixed up the studio so as to make it look prosperous. One fine lady came in a carriage to sit for her portrait. She gave her wraps into the keeping of the little mother at the door, with an admonitory. Take care of these, mind you, or I'll report you to your master. The little mother bowed low and promised. That night when she told at the supper table how the fine lady had mistaken her for a servant, Henri said, well, just charge the fine lady 50 francs extra in the bill for that. But Ari would not consent to let the blunder go so cheaply. When the fine lady came for her next setting, the little mother was called and advised with at length as to pose and color scheme. Neither was the advising sham, for Ari deferred to his mother's judgment in many ways, and no important step was taken without her approval. They were more like lovers than mother and son. His treatment of her was more than affectionate. It was courteous and deferential, after the manner of men who had ancestors who were knights of the olden time. The desire to sit on a divan and be waited upon is the distinguishing feature of the heartless mistress of fortune. Like the jeweled necklace and bands of gold at wrist and waist, which symbol a time when slavery was rife, and these gods had a practical meaning. So does the woman who, in bringing men to her feet, by beck and nod, tell of animality to course for speech. But the woman with the great tender and loving heart gives her all and asks no idolatrous homage. Her delight is in serving, and willingly and more than willingly. For without thought she breaks the vase of precious ointment and wipes the feet of the beloved with the hairs of her head. Madame Schaefer sought in all ways to serve her sons, and so we find there was always gentle rivalry between Ari and his mother as to who could love most. She kept his studio in order, cleaned his brushes, and prepared the canvas. In the middle of the forenoon, she would enter his workroom with tea and toast or other little delicacies that he liked, and putting the tray down, would kiss the forehead of the busy worker and gently tiptoe out. When the day's work was done, 
she intelligently criticized and encouraged, and often she would copy the picture herself and show how it could be changed with the better here or there. And all this fine, frank, loving companionship so filled Aries' heart that he put far behind him all thought of a love for another with its closer tie. He lived and worked with the little mother. They were very happy, but they were succeeding. They had met the great cruel world, the world of Paris, that romps and dances and laughs and sees struggling and sad-eyed women and men go down to their death and still laughs on. They had met the world in fair fight, and they had won. The little mother had given all for Airy. On his genius and ability, she had staked her fortune and her life. And now, although he was not twenty-one, she saw all that she had given in perfect faith coming back with interest ten times compounded. The art world of Paris had both recognized and acknowledged the genius of her boy. With that, she was content. In the year 1818, we find General Lafayette writing to Lady Morgan in reference to a proposed visit to the Chateau de la Grange. He says, I do not think you will find it dull here. Among others of our household is a talented young painter by the name of Sheffer. Later, Lady Morgan writes to friends in England from LaGrange. Harry Sheffer, a talented artist, is a member of our company here at the Chateau. He is quite young, but is already a person of note. He is making a portrait of the general and giving lessons to the young ladies in drawing, and I, too, am availing myself of his tutorship. Through his strong Republican tendencies, Sheffer had very naturally drifted into the company of those who knew Lafayette. The artist knew the history of the great man and was familiar with his American career. Sheffer was interested in America, for the radicals with whom he associated were well aware that there might come a time when they would have to seek hastily some hospitable climb where to think was not a crime. And indeed, it is both natural that those with a penchant for heresy should locate a friendly shore, just as professional criminals studied the extradition laws. Lafayette, Franklin, and Washington had long been to Sheffer a trinity of familiar names, and when an opportunity came to be introduced to the great Franco-American patriot, he gladly took advantage of it. Lafayette was 61, Sheffer was 23, but there at once sprang up a warm friendship between them. Not long after their first meeting, Sheffer was invited to come to LaGrange and make it his home as long as he cared to. The little mother urged the acceptance of such an invitation. To associate for a time with the aristocratic world would give the young man an insight into society and broaden his horizon. In the family of Lafayette, Sheffer mingled on an equality with the guests. His conversation was earnest, serious, and elevated, and his manner so gracious and courtly that he won the respect of all he met. Lady Morgan intimates that his simplicity of manner tempted the young ladies who were members of his class in drawing to cut furious innocent capers in his presence and indulge in sly jokes 
which never would have been perpetrated had the Tudor been more of a man of the world. It has happened more than once that men of the highest spirituality have had small respect for religion, as it is popularly manifested. The machinery of religion and religion itself are things that are often widely separated. An airy shuffle was too high-minded and noble to worship the letter and relinquish the spirit that maketh alive. He was of that type that often goes through the world, scourged by a yearning for peace, and like the dove sent out from the ark, finding no place to rest. All about he beheld greed, selfishness, hypocrisy, and pretense. He longed for simplicity and absolute honesty, and was met by craft and diplomacy. He asked for religion, and was given a creed. And so, into the hearts of such as he, there comes creeping a spirit of revolt. Instead of accepting this topsy-turvy old world, and making the best of it, their eyes are fixed upon an ideal that heaven alone can realize. The home of Lafayette was the rendezvous of the discontented. Art, literature, politics, and religion were all represented in the parlors of LaGrange. Where Franklin had discoursed, poor Richard philosophy. There now gathered each Sunday night a company in which the greatest of the Americans would have delighted. For this company, no question was too sacred for frank and free discussion. It was at the home of Lafayette that Sheffer made Augustine Thierry, and between these two there grew a friendship that only death was to divide. But there was one other person Sheffer met at LaGrange who was to exercise a profound influence on his life. This was the Duchess of Orleans. The quiet manliness of the young artist impressed the future Queen of France, and he was invited to Neuilly to copy certain portraits. End of section 11